<laughs> Got it. Oh, you're doing it again, are you? Yeah. When will I wise up? Howdy, everybody. Get it to me again. I'm Robert. And I'm Ira. And this is Money Shot. And this week, we've got a sequel in store. Mm-hmm. Mm. Sequel. Is this our first sequel? It, it, it is. I think it is our first yes. sequel. So we're excited about that. This week, we're going to be talking about Train Spotting 2. Train Spotting 2. Ira, we're going to talk about Train Spotting a little bit later on, but we got to talk about some drugs too. Drugs are we are talking good. about within the context of the film, or oh no, having us? nothing to do with the film? Oh, okay. Uh, we also this week have our top five, as per usual. We do our top five. Uh, the, uh, our top five is is it is or are because no, seriously, it's one list. Oh. It's five movies, but it's one list. And I think even though it sounds grammatically odd, it's our top five is. Wow, that's weird. Is it sound weird? Well, our top five movies are. I think it's really, are. But I think it, it's like saying five miles is a long distance. You don't say five miles are a long distance. It's one unit of measure. But look, you're saying you're, five miles. Our top five uh, are? Uh, our top five is? Why don't we ask our listeners? Fuck, like anybody cares. Anyway, we're going to talk about our top five. Drug movies. Druggies. Favorite movies about drugs. Yeah. Yeah. This is going to be a very heavy week. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Get comfy. But before we do that, we do have some mail that we got to talk about. Uh, we got a, a couple of little pieces here, but there's one in particular that I wanted to read. Uh, this person wrote quite a bit, but I thought it was really interesting. He said, I enjoyed this episode, unlike the other garbage you guys have put up so far. Hey. That's pretty nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, says, uh, it says, LOL, JK. Anyway, I just wanted to uh, send you an email because I'm sitting here finishing up the podcast. I'm learning things about you by listening to this podcast. For example, I had no idea that Halloween messed you up so bad. This was directed towards mm-hmm. me, I think. Um, and it, to be fair, it wasn't necessarily Halloween, but it was Halloween 2 that really messed me up. But Halloween was not easy on my soul either. Uh, anyway, this says, uh, <laughs> um, you still have a hard time watching it alone now. My husband said he understands, so you two pussies can watch it together. That's great. <laughs> I'm going to sit here and watch it with somebody's husband, watch, uh, watch Halloween and Halloween 2. Actually, I think that's probably the only way I can watch that that movie now is maybe that person could be our guest next week. Maybe. Um, furthermore, this person says for good measures, my favorite monster movie is night of the Lepus. Do you know that movie? You know, I, I got that email and I was going to Google that. I'm not familiar with it. It's a bad seventies movie about these rabbits that, uh, that come attack. It's like evil rabbits that attack. It was notoriously bad. I don't think I've ever saw it, but it's, uh, it's a really shitty movie. So here's my question. Was it intentionally campy and bad, or did they really try to make a good, scary little movie I, there? I don't think I ever saw it, so no. I can't really speak no. to it. But it was uh, it was back when all those horror movies were coming out where it was just, just put some sort of horror movie out, and we'll see if we can't make some money back. So, uh, yeah, so not a lot. I think, I think she was joking. She says, actually, my favorite horror movie is 28 Days Later, but mostly for when Silly Murphy says, shredded. And uh, I'm not entirely sure it falls into the monster category, but if Gremlins and Body Snatchers does, then I think 28 Days, day, 28 days Later could, too. Uh, funny story, my sister and nephew came to visit once, and he was maybe 13 or 14, so he was being a real turd. And I'm <laughs> trying to act all hard, so we went to a blockbuster. <laughs> 
Do you remember Blockbusters? Yeah. Went to a Blockbuster and rented 28 Days Later because he said he wanted to watch a scary movie. Apparently, he had to sleep with the lights on for a month after that. So take that, you little turd. Uh, also, his wife just had a baby, so I guess he's not such a little turd anymore. Oh, that's... Yeah. You know, 28 Days Later had two different endings. Are it you did. aware of that? Yeah. Yeah, and when I saw it in the theater on its first release, they showed both endings. Mm-hmm. They actually had one ending, and then they had on the screen, and then there's this, <laughs> and they showed us the other ending with the white sheets spelling out the word help. Isn't that huh. correct? I yeah, think yeah. that was the more yeah. optimistic ending when the jets were flying over. It's so interesting that we're talking about 28 Days Later because we're watching another Danny Boyle movie. We're gonna, That's right. That segues perfectly into what we yeah. were talking about. Funny story about 28 Days Later, when that movie came out, uh, I was living with a couple other dudes in Echo Park, and uh, we were a little post-college action. Everybody was really poor. And we used to do this one uh, job for money. Not that job. That job, you know, that paid a lot of money. Oh. Turning tricks down on Santa Monica. But the I knew other you job, familiar. Yeah, the other, <laughs> the other job that we did that, uh, that made us a little bit of money and was definitely a way to kill time was we would... Um, we would go see these uh, movies that were sneak, pre- they, they were like test audiences, basically. And w- somehow or another, we got a hookup into this system. I, I still get emails from them all the time to go see these movies and be a test screener and, and review the movie. And we discovered that if you go to those and if you know who the people are that are, that are controlling the interview, you can kind of hit them up before the movie starts and get them to uh, pay you 10 bucks to sit around for the movie after the movie for another 10 or 15 minutes and talk about it. So you actually got paid $10 to go watch a movie. And it, we, were, we were all broke, so we were going, man, the idea of going to see a movie for free was appealing, but getting paid 10 bucks was just blowing oh. our minds. So I got this phone call one night from this woman and she says uh, hey I've got a, a new movie and you guys have you've been to previous screenings do you want to come see it and I'm going yeah sure and she goes but here's the catch it has to be all men and only only males can come and I'm going what, what only males she goes yeah and they have to be aged 18 to 35 or something like that and I said okay and she said I said what's the movie about she said it's about a disease it's about this outbreak and I'm going Okay, and all I could think of was that Dustin Hoffman movie, the Outbreak movie. That's right. So that's all we we knew going into it, and the guys didn't really want to go, and we were kind of like, ah, should we do this or not? We go in and see this movie, and we know nothing about it, uh, and it had not, no one had even spoken about it in the U.S., and they had finished it, and I think maybe it played a couple of places, but just real, real quietly. And only a couple people in the audience afterwards even knew anything about the film. But I'm telling you, this whole audience that was packed with only dudes, they screamed and whined and were so terrified of this movie. Literally, I mean, there were guys... I, I, my buddy Mark was up in my arms. Like, I was holding him. He was so scared. And uh, we were jumping all over each other because we just had no clue that it was a zombie movie. We didn't realize that. We didn't know that. We just thought it was something about a disease. And that really made a... That's one of my favorite film-going moments ever in a theater, was just seeing this movie, not knowing what I was in store for. And it was really at that point that I realized trailers and a lot of the promotional stuff ruins movies in a lot of ways, right. because not knowing anything about the film made that film. And this movie was, was titled? 
28 Days Later. This was the... Tw- oh, did we reference that? Yeah. I'm not sure if you met... It was I, said, I said later. my favorite 28 Days Later I have later to learn story. to listen more. <laughs> I have to learn to listen more. You know, that's, actually, that does remind me about the, uh, the test screenings. There was a place called the Sunset Preview House. Are you mm. familiar with this, Robert? Uh, I know of it. And uh, I went there many times. I'm proud to say that I, um, I reviewed Star Trek before it was broadcast. Wow. And at that time, in the large auditorium, there were these boxes with the dials. The dial, and it was, right? Yes, very bad, bad, average, good, very good. And they even put rings on our fingers to measure our hot heartbeat and perspiration mm-hmm. and um, uh, Star Trek. And then we filled out a bunch of forms afterwards. How about that? Now, you know, um, Adam Carolla talks sometimes in his podcast about that same concept. And he talks about how one of the problems with that inherently is, you know, when you sit down and watch something like uh, All in the Family, for example, and you see someone who has a, it has a negative quality and, and then you jack that dial all the way over to, you know, does not like and how, how those kind of tests, tests would have not scored very well for All in the Family. But it's because he's so bad, because right. he's so awful. That's what right. sells the TV show. Right. And I wonder if a lot of the um, more modern audience testing is, in a lot of ways, screwing up cinema and screwing up television. Because, I mean, think about, like, Walter White from Breaking Bad. It's, I mean, obviously, that's a slow burn over the course of several seasons that he starts to turn really evil. But it would not be the same show if he was... All good. I mean, right. I think by the end of the show, people hated him. And the non-discerning viewer would go very bad on right. the character because they don't like the character instead of appreciating the quality of great acting yeah. and a really cool script. So I, I wonder. It also tends to uh, dilute, and it goes down, I think, to the lowest common denominator yeah. when you have people and the ratings and the rankings and getting feedback. And mm-hmm. um, I think it dilutes the original intent of the, uh, of the maker, the filmmaker, by overdoing yeah. audience reaction. You remember that? And Snakes on a Plane. Wasn't that the first film where actually the internet was involved in deciding how the movie was going to end? Did you hear that? I'm not sure if it was the first, but it, I mean, I, there was a lot of that. The script had re- been leaked out and uh, people were you know, making jokes about it beforehand. Like, this is awful. And it was like a big internet joke. And then they realized they had something there and they said, you know what, let's turn this right, right. into an actual film. But speaking of film... Oh, our segue into Danny Boyle. He did some incredible films. He the really direct, did. We were rattling them off earlier. Just yeah, Danny Boyle three or four. has done not only, uh, not only 28 Days Later, but also uh, 127 Hours. Right. Apparently he likes numbers in his movies because <laughs> he did Trainspotting 2. Uh, he also did Trainspotting, the original Trainspotting. He did Slumdog Millionaire. Right. Uh, and a number of other films that are recognizable, uh, Shallow Grave. There's a, a few other films. Those are probably his highlights that we just mentioned. Um, and he's certainly one of the more respected directors in Hollywood at, around now. So for him to to do Trainspotting 2, the whole time I was watching this movie, I kept thinking about what an unlikely sequel. I I can't imagine too many films that I, I would think, man, this, this is an unlikely sequel. Uh, continuation of a story that I kind of felt like was done. I never would have suspected train spotting as having another edition. And, uh, and I, I ultimately, I thought it was kind of an interesting choice, but I guess we should talk about the the movie first. Before you critique it, let me suggest, and you're very good at this. I'm going to ask that you take us through the plot of the story in broad strokes. All right. So the movie opens up with, uh, Ewan McGregor's character, which is Mark. And he's come back to, 
uh, Edinburgh. He's uh, he's been away for 20 years. Now, if you haven't seen the original Train Spotting film, it certainly helps to kind of get yourself caught back up. But the main focus of the film of the first, the main focus of this film, which kind of uh, continues the the end of the first film is that he has screwed over all of his friends. He's stolen a bunch of money. They had a big drug deal that they were going to do. And Hugh McGregor walks away with all this money. And that's how the the first film ends. So spoiler alert for a movie that's over 20 years old. (laughs) Uh, So Mark's back now and he kind of reconnects with, uh, with Simon and Spud and Frank, who, if you recall, was the uh, Robert Carlyle character from the first one. He's just insane, and he's in prison now, and he's someone who's very, very violent. And everyone, even in the first film, was very scared of Frank. They were afraid of his explosive nature. And he seems to have gotten even more explosive as the he years have mellowed out in Not these two all. decades, he, has he? In fact, he's just learned more skills. Right. And he escapes from prison and he's uh, out on the, the the loose and finds out that Mark, Hugh McGregor's character, is back in town and now he's trying to kill him uh, because he's been d- double-crossed. Everybody kind of has uh, some frustration with Hugh McGregor's character. An axe to grind. Right, there. Thank you. Yeah. And then along the way, they start to realize that maybe there's another scam left in them. Uh, Simon has this idea of starting a brothel so that he can... Um, kind of give his girlfriend something to do and uh, and kind of give her the kind of, uh, what am I trying to say, the, the business opportunity that he feels that she deserves. By the way, she didn't, she wanted to be uh, managing. The, right. She didn't want to be actively oh, that's involved. True. I, yeah, I should, I should mention that. that. Not just right. that she uh, right. deserves to go fuck a bunch of dudes. Right. Uh, no, but so they, they try to scam everybody to get all this money to set up this brothel and, uh, and then, of course, they're trying to fight off Frank and trying to hold that and then uh, hold him at bay. And, uh, and comic tension ensues, but yet also a lot of just... Uh, it, it turns a little Three Stooges-esque there yes. for a while, doesn't it? Yes. Are you talking about when they're in the club singing at that sequence? Or well, I'm talking, talking about just how they're, about. they're all trying to bonk each other over mm-hmm. the head. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately, they're, they're trying to escape Frank and try to get the, the this money that they've put together for this brothel and there's a lot of double crossing that's going on. All right, that's kind of the summary of the story. Am I missing any key pieces? No, except maybe the, the end, but no, would you rather... Uh, oh, the, then, the end is, uh, by the end of the movie, uh, they wind up luring Frank into the into the brothel that they're going to... They're building the brothel. They have it out with them and all three of them kind of collude together to knock out Frank, they put him in the trunk of a car and deliver it to the police. And then it turns out that uh, Simon's girlfriend has kind of double-crossed all of them along with the help of Spud, who is always kind of the audience favorite. He's kind yes. of the, the dumb, dimwit who is lovable. And I think he had the most kind heart. heart. Yeah. So uh, I guess that's kind of the story. That's how we wrap it all up. Am I missing anything No one that? died. No one, wait, did, did anyone, wait, did die? anyone die? No, I don't think anybody died. Sequel, part three. Uh, I would not be surprised now. Part three. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's start. What did you think? I did like it. Um, I don't think I liked it as much as you did. I saw the film when it first came out in the theater, and it was how long ago? How many, was it over 20? About 20 years about ago, 20 yeah. 20 years ago, and I didn't remember the original as well as you did. Um, there was an issue that I reacted to mm-hmm. quite strongly, then I felt for a large part of the movie was actually 
too stylish for its own good mm. in the way of the, uh, the optics. They would do the freeze frame. Mm-hmm. They did that frequently, like a half a dozen times. And, um, and also the music, we had um, a spud boxing. They did the Raging Bull mm-hmm. theme music. And they did a James Bond piece. And it was for me, it was pulling me out of the story and reminding me that I was seeing a film, that it was too stylish and too self-conscious. Mm. You look pained when you no, say that. No, I'm wondering that. if you're going to agree or disagree with that. Well, I'm going to disagree, but uh, that's okay for you for us to disagree. That's the beauty of the podcast worlds. We can disagree with each other. Well, fuck you. You're right. Fuck off. Get out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I really like this film. I thought this film was um, this is one of the better films I've seen in a long time. I think uh, I like the stylized visuals. I think. Um, it, it reminds me a lot of Bertolt Brecht, and I was kind of talking a little bit about this before with you. That uh, For those of you that aren't familiar with Bertolt Brecht, he was a German... Um, he d- did the Three Penny Opera. He was a German uh, playwright and director out of Berlin who many, many years ago basically started a style of theater that reminded everyone that they were watching a play. So as they would see things in the play, every time it started to become... Uh, a moment of getting lost in the story, they would have characters that would address the audience and say things like, you know, this is just a play and just keep pulling you out of the narrative. And that was a stylistic choice. And it was really to, uh, more so than even like Ferris Bueller's Day Off where Ferris will sometimes turn to the camera and break that fourth wall. This is a constant reminder uh, that you're, you're watching a play, and in this case, I think that's something that Danny Boyle is going for with the film, which is you are watching a movie, and never forget that you're watching a movie. And as you start to get lost in the story, I will remind you that you're watching a movie. But doesn't that distract from the overall enjoyment of why we go to movies? I don't think so. I think I think it's a kind of um, I think it's a kind of language that's really more towards filmmakers. I think um, I think film itself has become not only a medium, but a language. And people are, are going to films, A, to get lost, but B, to admire the artwork. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is like, if you look at a painting and you see a bunch of flowers, that's one thing and you may not appreciate it. But if you look closer and see the brush mm. strokes, you might appreciate the way that the artist painted that painting even more. And I think that's what he's trying to do is he's trying to say, there's a story here. And for those of you that want the story, here's the story. But I think what he's really trying to say is, um, and and I think even in the dialogue, they were kind of addressing this. It's really an homage to the first film. Uh, I, I felt like the whole movie was a love letter to the first film. There's even little snippets of dialogue where they're talking about how they were living in the past and uh, they, they couldn't move on looking forward. And I think that's really the filmmakers that are talking about themselves. And there's a lot of discussion about what happened 20 years ago. Not just a quick mention of like, oh, yeah, that's what... I mean, if you watch a film like um, uh, like Ocean's 11 versus Ocean's 12 or even Ocean's 13, there's quick mentions of what happened earlier, but that's about it and they move on. This almost seems like an obsession with what happened 20 years ago. And I, it doesn't only feel like it's the characters, it feels like it's the filmmakers who are talking about right, that and, right. and where that journey has led them. So to me, I was on board with it. Mm-hmm. I like the film, uh, the original Spotting a lot. I hadn't seen it, it has to have been at least 10 years since I've seen that movie. Uh, but I'd seen it once when it came out in theaters and 
didn't really get it. I think a lot of why I didn't get it was the the um, the delivery of the lines was so the accent was so thick. I couldn't really understand right, a lot right. of what they were saying. And so I think when I watched it with the subtitles on, I could understand it more. Did the first movie have that same type of stylistic? It did it, not it did? nearly did as it? much, but it it did have. They did have freeze frames. They did have a lot of um, mm-hmm. these those moments. The music was kind of blaring, but it, this has been cranked up and polished a little bit more, so I think it's easier to notice. Right, right. Um, but I've, I I wrote down even on my notes as we were watching the film, I felt like this was definitely a a love letter to the original film. And I think there are some really cool moments for people who remember the first film. There's shots. There's these just really beautiful, um, what am I trying to say? Like homages to its, its predecessor. There's, uh, let's see, there's a, there's a great scene where Ewan McGregor is going through the, uh, it's, it's not even a scene, it's like a shot. He's in the uh, bathroom at this nightclub and he's trying to take a moment to himself and he goes into the bathroom and he kicks open the, the bathroom stall and he looks at the toilet and there's this nasty toilet filled with shit and uh, toilet paper sitting all over it. And it reminds us of the original train spotting scene where he has to find the heroin in the toilet and digs through and it's one of the grossest scenes in cinema history. Where right, he has and to, Robert, you laughed out loud at that. I thought it was, I was great. Sitting next, yeah, yeah. I thought it was yeah. a really, really great little homage. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a great scene where he comes home, where Ewan McGregor's character comes home, and for the first time he sits uh, down and plays a record. And Yes, what he, was so fun? Again, <laughs> Robert laughed out loud. Because I the saw needle, what they were doing. Why don't you tell, I don't know what, that so went over my head. He puts the needle down on the record, uh-huh. and you hear the... Of the record playing, and then the very first song kicks up, and it plays one note of Iggy Pop's uh, the uh, oh, what's the, the the big song from the first film? It's the Iggy Pop song. The name escapes me right now, but it's the uh, not the Passenger. What's it called? Lust for Life, and it plays the the very first like yeah yeah yeah, and that's all it gets. You don't even get more than a note, and then he pulls the needle up off the record, and it's kind of like no no no. And it's it's an homage. There's an acknowledgement, right, of, of the, of the song, of and and really, it's kind of like it's. Was are it we also going on a record route? player too? In yeah. the same, so they replic- so, they recreated. Well, I don't. They didn't have that scene, but it's that song that he's choosing to play, which is. It's as if the filmmakers are saying, "We know that the past is there, and we're gonna tease you with it, right? And you're gonna get some of it, but." We're not going to go the exact same route. This is a different story. It's a different time, but we've not forgotten where we came from. And that's why you howled at that one beat. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There's another really great shot, too, of uh, when Ewan McGregor is being chased by um, by Frank, the crazy Frank, and they're all running through the, uh, the, um, the brothel, and he climbs through the roof of the of the uh, the brothel to try to escape Frank. And he, as he pulls himself up on the roof, there's a real quick shot, and it's very stylized, and it's the same shot of Hugh McGregor pulling himself out of the toilet from the first one. So there's a lot of these really great shots. There's an, an amazing shot where uh, Hugh McGregor has been riding on top of a car, and he slides off the front of the car, and he stares at the guy behind the car in the exact same way that we saw from the first train spotting when uh, Ewan McGregor got 
hit by a car as he's trying to escape right. uh, the, these guys that were chasing him. So but there's a lot of these little nuggets. Yeah, the, and nuggets indeed. It's To me, it's sounding like you almost have to be a scholar on the first film in order to appreciate the sequel. I'm certainly not. I've just seen the movie. I mean, literally, I haven't seen it in 10 years. Yeah, because the it visuals on its are own. so iconic. What if somebody didn't see the first film? I do Would think that the, this film own? stands up. Right. I think it does. Now, you liked this more than the original, didn't you? I did. I liked it more than the original because it's cleaner, it's slicker, but it still has a lot of edge. Right. And I want to go back to one question, if I may. Please. The famous turntable scene, of which you laughed, uh, and they played the one note of that famous song. Yeah. Do you think, A, that song was listed in the closing credits, and B, did they have to pay for the rights for that one note of that one song? I wondered, and I saw, and they did. This crossed your mind too, Robert? Yes. Yeah, I love it. So it was listed in the music portion of the closing credits. Yes. So assuming that they had to pay for the rights for that one note. Yes. And I I I wondered if that's what they were going to do. Yeah. And that's what they did. And they, They never played the full song. Now, they did play... Uh, another version of that song oh. anyway, uh, but it wasn't the original, it, just that one little blast. Yeah. And it's so iconic and it's so, uh, there are two songs that were really associated with that, uh, the, with the original. And I guess there were other songs too, but two in my mind that really, really stuck out was the Lust for Life song with Iggy Pop. And then um, another song called Born Slippy, which is by Underworld. And I mean, that you can remember this movie came out right in my prime time of watching Cinema, the original train spotting. So for me, uh, I, I just was soaking up everything that was coming out. I haven't seen it. I, I saw it again maybe once. I've seen this movie, the original, maybe three times. Uh, maybe, but probably not even that. But I think this film did a really nice job of, of reminding us of why we liked the first film and yet still giving us a new story. All right. Well, let me ask you this, if I may. Please. I'm going to steer this a little bit. Okay. Uh, we saw a movie this evening about four heroin addicts mm-hmm. who would do whatever it would take to score more money to, whether it's to buy a prostitution house or to score more heroin. Um, who was likable in this movie? Who did you root for? I think they're all scuzzy, and that's kind of the point of the first one. Now, I know you and I have discussed this. I know. I, I know. know that you don't necessarily think that there has to be a hero, not in a conventional sense. So, we've, we've had this talk. I'm interrupting you a lot, and sure. I apologize. For no, we had this talk a lot about um, the hero doesn't necessarily have to be likable, but we need to care. Yeah. We need to care about this person, or the hero needs to be compelling. You didn't find them compelling? No, now that I'm redefining it. Well, the, no, there, were, okay. there were no heroes in this film. The antagonist, do you agree with that? There were no heroes. Um, I disagree, but I, I can see where you might think that. There's certainly despicable characters, but I think, I think the fact that you have a, a solid villain in Frank makes a lot of these guys, it makes the unity of them the hero. It's the, the three of them united against this common foe, and that's what is the the real hero. There's, I mean, they even do this great homage train shot where the train reveals, uh, they go to visit their dead friend, uh, in a memorial and, and the train, uh, leaves the station and it's the three of them standing there, which is essentially the same shot from the first, uh, train spotting as well. And that to me captured the idea. Like that is the hero. It's the three of them together. And it's not necessarily Spud's movie or Simon's movie or 
Mark's movie, but it's really the three of them. If anyone, I would say it's probably Mark's movie, Ewan McGregor's story. I mean, we spend the most time with him. True. But you disagree with that? No, I don't. I, I agree with that. But Spud had the most heart. True. Yeah. He had the most dignity and the most... He also saved the day. Yeah. With the toilet. In many ways. Yeah, with the toilet and also with, uh, uh, you know, sending his money off to his family. Right. He, did, he did the noble acts. And writing the stories... Writing the stories, which well, he also begins he was... the movie or the, begins his story with a suicide. So we know he's at rock bottom. We know he's uh, he's really he's got nowhere to go but up. Whereas the other characters, uh, Ewan McGregor really begins up. We think that he's got it all together and he's just kind of jumping back home for a quick minute. And then uh, Simon's character as well is kind of a. I mean, he's he's trying to claw back up, but he's he's got the girl already. He's already got. The, uh, you know, he's got a place of his own with a TV and a bunch of movies and he's got stuff. <clears throat> so he has some element of financial support for himself, even though he always seems to be scrambling for money. He's not rock bottom like Spud is. No one changes in this film. No one grows. No one arcs. Do you agree with that? I disagree. You disagree. I tell, think Spud tell. definitely grew. And I would say, too, you know, I think you, I think you, I think Mark's the, the, Mew McGregor character, I think he grew a little bit too. He, he comes home, he's a little distant from his father. He's estranged from his family. He's estranged from his roots. And then at the end, we see him hugging his dad. We see him embracing his roots. We see him uh, sitting in the same, on the same couch with Simon. We see growth, which is that he's, he's changed and, and accepted his history and, and kind of settled into it a little bit. Now, that may not seem like a huge growth. Right. Right. But I do see some growth there. However, if you were to speculate, do you think the four characters would continue on their journey as heroin addicts? Um, that's this. I'm, that's asking, a great I'm asking you good questions. Here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think yes. What do you think? Um, I think so. I think that's probably what's true. I think that's what I, I think what, where we left off. I mean, it's kind of an extraordinary tale about ordinary people in the first one. And I think we've continued that with this when I think every, all the characters are true to who they were in the first film. None of them became completely unbelievable. It was like, okay, I could see this being your lifestyle. And, uh, you know, Spud is still a recovering addict. And, and Simon it seems to have just jumped onto a different drug, but he's still just as addicted. And um, only Hugh McGregor got clean, but he still has his own demons that he's chasing. Uh, Frank is is a bigger asshole than ever. So yeah, I feel like all the characters are still true to themselves. Um, so yeah, I think I think if we were to flash forward another twenty years, we would see the. I mean, maybe they're not necessarily hooked on heroin, but they they're definitely living a bad life. That's a gentle nod from Ira. <laughs> a bad life, yeah, yeah. T three in twenty years. That's right. Um, one of the things that I noticed about this film, I think this is our first foreign film that we've reviewed on this show. Was this a foreign film? I suppose it was. It was. Yeah. 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 You're right. You're right. I don't think we've done any other foreign films that I'm aware of. And it even had subtitles. And it's the first sequel. And Yeah, and it did have subtitles. And that... Even the subtitles were That to playful. me was also part of the, that the was Brechtian part of this, approach. Right, right, yeah. right. The, the subtitles they were, flash on the screen in a way that's not the conventional subtitles at the bottom. Uh, they're not even every... It's really 
when people say things which, with such a thick uh, accent that we can't really understand what they're saying, it, it, only those little phrases are popping right, up on the screen. Right, right. And literally, the, the characters and the subtitles, the, the letters themselves were in the forced perspective of the... Ang- if it was on a wall, right. you know what I mean? They would, they would angle off as if it part of that scene yeah. instead of the conventional way. <laughs> and Again, I like style. I, I know you do, yeah. Yeah, a style, another stylistic device. You know, and I am nitpicking here, but I, I felt like it certainly was a funny scene when the two of them had to um, sing at that club, that anti-Catholic song. Yeah. I thought it went on too long, and I didn't think it was believable. I didn't either. That was probably the least believable moment we in agree. the whole thing. A, it went on too long, and B, it was not believable. Those two guys would not have done that. Yes. And having the crowd... By the way, but that was very clever how they got the pin numbers from all the pickpocketing the credit cards. So, that all was, right, we should explain yeah, the scene. Yeah. So, there's a, a, a group of... A group of these, uh, these locals who... Basically have, I, I don't know enough of the history to talk about it, but in 1690, there was apparently a big battle that was fought. And uh, this group of people... Catholics with, versus the Protestants. Catholics versus the right, Protestants. Right. Uh, and, and these are the, the Protestants who still quietly observe their hatred for the Catholics. Not so quiet. <laughs> yeah, well, Not so quiet. But privately, yeah, I guess. Yeah, like yeah, they, yeah. they know enough to, to go secretly away and to, uh, to, to go to this little uh, banquet hall or something and have their, uh, what am I trying to say? Like their, their, their song and dance, or whatever. So these guys, our, our heroes, Simon and Mark, they decide to go rob these people. And what they do is they... They sneak into the back. They've written one six nine zero all over their arms with sharpie to make it or fingers to make it look like tattoos. And because this battle happened in sixteen ninety, they start picking everybody's pockets and they're uh, they're trying to blend in with everybody else. And then in the process, they get caught. And someone says, "All right, well, hop up there and sing a song if you're so down with our cause and everything." And so they do. They uh, ad lib. They ad lib a song. And the song is really well crafted, so this is too much of a yes. coincidence. And that, that to me, I think, is the the biggest stretch in the agreed in the movie is this whole song that they just spontaneously are able to to whip up. And then the beauty of the scene, though, is once they've gotten all these credit cards, they start hitting the ATMs, right? And they know the pin number, which is. One six nine zero. The, the year, year, the, the year of the battle, which was very funny, and it was working on not all the credit cards, but enough to make it very, very funny to make uh, yeah. it work. And yeah. they would say, oh, "Okay, this one, we don't. That's not the password." Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Great. Throw that one Throw that. Oh, this. Yeah. This one, it does work. This one, it does work. That, that's a really great moment, and and that I think was the most believable. I do too. I'm talking about the actual singing, the performing of the song. The singing, yeah, the stretch, I agree. I think they could have gotten away with it if he had just done one verse. If he had said. This one, went on too long. Yeah. And if they'd just done it one time, because it's like he did a little rhyme and everybody cheered, and then they busted it out in the full song. Then it became shtick. Yeah. It reminded me of uh, a Dana, Car- Dana Carvey movie uh, called uh, um, Opportunity Knocks, which I don't know if you've ever seen I before. See it, no. uh, it's back from the 80s, and it was a really great. There's a scene just like it where he's trying to, he's pretending to be, he's a con man, he's pretending to be somebody else, and then. Uh, he gets pressured into singing a song, and they uh, they throw it on for him. It's like karaoke night, and he gets up there and sings um, "Born to Be Wild," and 
he starts out really awful and then he sees a gangster who's been looking for him and he just jumps into this song because he's so, uh, he just starts getting so caught up in it and everybody goes nuts and they're like, oh, this is amazing. And it worked for that film because it was so ridiculous and over the top because it's a Dana Carvey movie. This isn't a Dana Carvey movie. This is train spotting. And it just didn't need all that shtick. That's right. exactly what you said. Right, right. Um, the, the scene that did get me and maybe this is one of my money shots, so we should talk about some money shots. Oh. But the scene that did get me... Why should we talk about it? We didn't talk about it last week. <laughs> Shut up, Ira. Oh, sorry, sorry. I didn't mean to call that to our <laughs> listeners' attention. Um, well, I, did, I talked about the, the smoke scene with the gas mask. That was Actually, probably... Actually, I think it was two Kong. weeks ago we forgot to talk about yeah. money shots. Okay, go ahead. So the... Uh, what was I going to say? The, 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 one of the money shots for me, and I think it was the, the moment where... I knew I was in. I was in for the movie. And I knew you, I could tell by your body language that you weren't going to like it as much as I was. It was towards the beginning. It's when Frank is trying to get out of prison and he hands this uh, little uh, steel wire, uh, sharp, pointy shank to a, another prisoner and says, you know, basically, okay, I want you to stab me here and I want you to stab me here. It's got to draw blood, but don't like, don't really go for it. And the guy goes, okay, all right. And then next thing you know, he's literally stabbed all the way through, uh, through Frank's like abdomen, and it's popping out his back. And that scene just got me because that's not what I. Well, expected. It got me too, and I did like I was squirming. That's what you were mm. seeing from me. I was squirming, and that was a great line where he said, uh, initially he was going to do it two times. Mm-hmm. He was going, and he said, "Should I do it again on the other side?" Mm-hmm. No, no, that's yeah. why. <laughs> <laughs> I, that scene was really well crafted, and. The pacing was just right. The acting was just right. And to me, that was one of the money shots that really stood out for me. Um, did you have a money shot? Did anything stick out for you? Spud with a bouquet of flowers. Yeah. So the scene where they went to the memorial yeah. and uh, went up on the hill. It's really powerful. It was. It was nice. Uh, the Spud scene that got me for the money shot was actually when he was committing suicide. And there was a very surreal scene uh, which was speaking in like metaphor where Spud was sitting on a chair and tipping backwards off the edge of the chair and just falling and falling and falling. And then at the last second, Mark slides in underneath him and catches Spud. Right. And I thought, wow, that, that to me is a really great moment. Right. He wasn't actually falling in the right. chair. That was like a metaphor for perhaps right. what was going on in his mind. Yeah. And so, yeah. again, I think that's, that's Brechtian. I think it's, it's addressing... This metaphor, we're not, I mean, it's, it's a visual metaphor for what's going on. It totally pulls us out of the story. It's saying to the audience, he's falling off a building. And I think if a, a casual audience member might be like, did he jump off a building? What's going on? No, no, no. It, this is a metaphor. He's actually trying to strangle himself. He's got an exit bag that he's got wrapped around his head. And he is slowly dying. And, um, and Ewan McGregor comes in to save him. Like, I guess the character's name is Mark. Yeah. Hugh McGregor just played Mark. But anyway, yeah, he's, uh, he's being saved by his friend in the same way that, you know, uh, catching somebody from falling from a falling building, from falling off a building. As I would do for you. No, you wouldn't. You just watch. <laughs> Get on my camera. You might <laughs> Look at the splatter. <laughs> um, so uh, you said before that you felt like it was too stylized. Did you feel like there was... Did you feel like the cinematography was good? I thought it was great. I thought it was one of the best shot films I I've seen. I thought it was great. I think this was one of the best photograph films ever. However, 
again, I'm being a little redundant. It was self-conscious. Yes. Glossy. Yes. And the angles. Every shot was was something. uh, Yeah. Yes. I can't think of very many shots at all in the film that didn't have some sort of quirk, whether it was a Dutch angle off to the side or whether it was, uh, you know, something in the foreground that was kind of out of focus in an unusual way. They even shot these, uh, these two guys that were sitting in a, a car, the, the way they shot the hood of the car was unusual. And I've, I've often thought of that. Like, how do you shoot two people sitting in a car in a new and unusual, fresh way? And I think he uncovered it. He just found a really cool way to find how to shoot most of Absolutely. these scenes. You know, even the title of the movie came in about 10 minutes into the film. Yeah, Did you notice that? Cold open for about yeah, 10 minutes. It was a then, long cold open. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it came in the same way that the original train spotting came in. That, Is that same right? logo. Yeah. That's kind of how they did the first one. Yeah, it was on like parallel lines. Was that uh, or yeah. Lo- yeah. Yeah. These like lines that were kind of. Right. Right. They were across. blinds of a. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to tell a story. <laughs> I have to tell Uh-oh. a story about a friend yeah. of mine. Yeah. Oh. A buddy of mine in high school, uh, we'll call him Steve to protect his. Identity. Why do I have a feeling that his real name is Steve? His real name is not Steve. Oh. But I'm, uh, I'm protecting his identity. I'll do that for him. But he had a crush on this girl. And we'll call her Elizabeth. That was her name. Steve had a big crush on Elizabeth. I mean, he was gaga for her. And she always had a boyfriend. And so Steve was always waiting for her to ditch the boyfriend. And finally, after a long enough period of time... She does. Now, here's the thing. Elizabeth is a good Christian, church-going girl. She loved God and just very, very good. Now, Steve, not so good. Now, he was a good guy, but he had a dark side that he didn't really let loose, you know, but he, especially in front of Elizabeth because he was trying to impress her. Well, they finally, they finally get their date, and good old Steve says, well, let's go see a movie. She goes, that sounds great. He goes, let's go see Train Spotting. And he takes her to see the original Train Spotting. And if you have not seen the original Train Spotting, there is excessive amounts of heroin, a ton of violence. There is uh, people, there are people overdosing left and right. There's a baby that dies, uh, vomit, shit. A guy crawling through a toilet. It's one of the worst first date movies, especially for someone as pure and, and God-fearing as this girl was. And she never went out with him again. Right, right. What an idiot. So the moral of the story is, don't take a first date to see Spotting 2. It's more of the same kind of stuff. I'm not making this up. Yeah. I really did go on a first date, a blind date. To, to see, see Spotting? Yes. Honest to God. What was it's his true. name? Uh, <laughs> Steve. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nicely done. <laughs> now, go ahead. Were no, you going to say a story that, about that, it? Yeah, so that at, it. at the end, that famous cliche said, so what do you think? <laughs> he said that to him. And she just looked at me. Yeah. Then we went home in silence and I never saw her again. True story. That sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely not a a date movie. Yeah. Do you think they could have come up with a better name than Transpotting? Let's talk about the title. What does the title mean? So Transpotting was a a reference in the first film of, uh, I think it's it's really about 
friendship and like they're together. Just uh, they got there's a scene in in the the first film that they even play a quick clip of in the second film, which is that they go down into the subway, this abandoned subway, and they're just kind of watching these trains and looking at the old trains and stuff. And and I think it's a a, a loose metaphor about the friendship that they have and um and just mm. you know sitting there Wait, on the tracks. I'm going to extend that metaphor. Yeah. A train is on a track. Mm-hmm. It goes on a predetermined path, just like these lives. Yeah. That's pretty good, huh? That, that's a, an interpretation. Oh, that means you didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was never crazy about the first title to begin mm-hmm. with. And, I mean, I think the idea of just saying train spotting 2... I, I, get, I can understand if commercially they're trying to bring in people who saw the first film and they're going, oh, yeah, like Transformers. You need Transformers 2 to be Transformers 2 because you're trying to appeal to the people who saw the first Transformers and bring them in to see the sequel. The people who saw the first Trainspotting, they're going to be aware that there's a sequel to Trainspotting, I feel like. Most of them. I'd say 90% of them. If, they, if they're interested in the first Trainspotting, they're going to find out that the sequel has been released and it's probably going to have a different name. So I don't know that they really needed train spotting too. It kind of cheapens it a little bit for me. Yet I do think it helped with the marketing and it will generate more probably. income because of the name. It, the franchise having the sequel with the same name yeah, and I think I it's got a built-in audience appeal. No? I don't think there's going to be... It has a built-in audience appeal already. I'm not disagreeing with that, but I don't know that it would really make that big of a difference. You're saying the audience would be hip enough yes. to know that even though it's not called that, it's a continuation of the same story. And I think it lends itself to, to criticism where people would say, all right, Train Spotting 2, oh, it's more sequels. You know, but if they were to do something like uh, when Ridley Scott came back to the Alien franchise, he called it Prometheus right. and was a little bit more knowledgeable about like how can we how can we do this in a way that isn't I know it's a whole new storyline and, and maybe that's not my best example, but do we really need to call everything part two or part three? I was just three? gonna say, yeah, how about part two with it, the graduate it, but for horror movies like Godfather. Yeah. Um but, horror movies, action movies, I get it. Because yeah. that's a little bit cheaper, but this isn't that kind of movie. We should it's not sophisticated. It wasn't a sophisticated action. It was, yes. It was almost a sellout. Almost. Almost. Not quite, but yeah. almost a sellout. Yeah. Almost. But I guess, I mean, in keeping with, the, with my commentary from earlier, it's all about, a, you know, it being aware of itself as a film. So I guess. That, there you go. That's supporting that argument. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I, I just wonder if they could have come up with something different. Do you think this film is about betrayal, right? What was this film about? Shouldn't have said betrayal because now you're going to say yeah. betrayal. Actually, I'm going to play it the other way and suggest it was about bonding. Hmm. These four punks strung out on a heroin and they, they're connected and they get, they're getting... Even though the bulk of the film, there's antagonism and getting even, mm-hmm. there's still something about this, this group. I, that's why I do think there'll be a sequel in another 20 years. Um, betrayal is part of it, but on a, on a deeper level, I think it's about these misfits, mm-hmm. the, the disenfranchised, yeah. who gravitate to one another 
and have that as their glue. Yeah, I, th- I think so. And maybe it's a matter of how that glue falls apart, that betrayal right, 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 and the right, bonding. Right. And maybe the first film was about they were bonded and then they broke at the very end with his betrayal of them. And then this is rebonding from that betrayal. And by the end, even though they've all been betrayed, they seem to have rebonded themselves. Yep. So I, I guess if we were to continue this... They didn't kill the bad guy at the end. They didn't. With, they just they turned didn't. him They in. put him in the trunk of the car. Yeah. And where was he going? The police station? Police station. So he's yeah. being turned... They did not kill him, did they? Right. Yeah. Um, and so it's, I think it's interesting if there was a... Uh, if there was yet another sequel, if there was a part three... I would be interested to see where it goes because are they going to start betraying each other again or are they going to betray someone else? Where's the revenge? Because that's kind of what's going on. That's definitely a theme for this movie. And one thing I did like that I have to say is I like that they they didn't reveal... If, if you hadn't seen the first film, they didn't reveal that he betrayed everyone right away. I know. I like the pacing. It was really I, interesting. Yes. And this is one of the few films I can think of that had some pretty fast edits in it, but the pacing was still pretty good for the storyline. It wasn't uh, trying to get everything out super fast of uh, like revealing too much information. They took their right. time with even with the, the third story. reconnecting with the the two. Uh, we're back in the toilet again uh, with the wall separating the two of them. Mm-hmm. They, they each realize who's in the other. Bathroom on the other side of the wall on the toilet. Right. So, so uh, Mark and this was like halfway into the halfway I mean, into the movie. I'd say forty percent into the film, right? Probably. Probably. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, Ewan McGregor has gone into this bathroom and he's hiding. Uh, he's he's tr- just trying to take a moment to himself and just kind of relaxing and just taking a breather in the b- bathroom toilet. And Marvel Carlyle's character, the, the main villain, comes in and uh, he's been popping a lot of Viagra and he <laughs> he sits down on the toilet. And he tries to pop another Viagra because nothing's happening. He can't get hard yet. And the packet of pills falls down and slides underneath the, the bathroom stall. And you know, McGregor picks it up and they have like a quick exchange, even though they can't see each other because they're divided with this bathroom stall. And you know, McGregor slides it back over to them after they kind of you know, call each other uh, like a, a wanker or a cunt or whatever it is they call each other. And then they both at the same time have this very slow reveal of who's on the other side. And of we the should stall. say it's a two shot. Yes. It's, it's a two shot where we see them both simultaneously split, yes. split screen. Go ahead. And it's a brilliant moment yeah. of just this, it's great acting where they're realizing at the same pace, same time, and they didn't cut away from it. And this is where the style I think starts to work. So many other films, even I think King Kong, which we talked about last week, was really trying to have a lot of style, but it was so fast and it was the you couldn't let anything breathe. And here there was a lot of breathing. This this one shot went on for probably a good 20, 30 seconds, mm-hmm. and it just let the actors do what they do. Right. And I think that was the beauty of what Danny Boyle does. Now, to be fair, I'm not a huge Danny Boyle fan. I did not like Slumdog Millionaire. I think some of his films, mm-hmm. yeah, I didn't really care for it. I think some of his films are, are kind of hit or miss, but I thought this one hit. I thought this one, um, I, I think he tried for a style. I think he accomplished what he was going out for, at least what I think he was going out for. Now, maybe, maybe you didn't think that he was going for some of those things, or maybe you don't care about what he was aiming for. But um, what I thought he was trying to do, I thought he scored pretty well. And I liked the movie. I just didn't appreciate it the same way you did. Mm-hmm. You were able to reference the first film 
and uh, you got a lot more out of it than I did. I think there's little nuggets for people who know the first film, and if you're familiar with it, he's rewarding you. He's like, yeah, here you go. But I do think it's a film that stands on its own. Right. And you again, as far as cinematography, I think this is the best movie we've seen. Well, I would rank two films top. The way that they were shot for best cinematography would be this and also um, Nocturnal Animals. Yeah. Nocturnal Animals was really good. Yeah. Moonlight was pretty solid as well. But I got to tell you, I think this one, um, I think they just took their time with setting up some of these shots. I, I can't think of a single shot that wasn't just really crisp and clean and 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 beautiful. And there was a lot of really interesting stuff going on stylistically. And and the editing as well. The, I think that I think it was edited really really nicely. Um, yeah, I like the movie overall. Anything else you want to add about the movie? Any other um, any other money shots that you could think of? Anything no. else you want to talk about? Mm-mm. No. Nope. Nope. <laughs> I'm spent. <laughs> yeah, you are. All right. Well, so what would you give the movie? Overall? I would give it, I would give it a solid hard B. B. All right, I'd yeah, give it an A. I know, I know. Yeah, I would give this an A, and I would give it maybe an A+. Plus. I might even Whoa. see this movie again. I would, I would definitely check this out. Maybe now that I've seen it once, I probably wouldn't check it out in the theater, but I would definitely watch this movie again. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, Good. hey, we did that. Let's talk about some top five. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do drugs, shall drugs. we? Drugs. Drugs. Are you talking about movies, or are you talking about you and me? Yeah, after we get, the let's get high. We should have done this high. No, wait, let me ask you something. Yeah. Um, because we're talking about drugs, and, and the main drug of this m- movie was heroin. Was it? I mean, they do heroin in the movie. Would you right. agree that it's mm-hmm. heroin? That's, mm-hmm. I mean, that was definitely the main drug for the first movie. And as you know, I, I have an ex-girlfriend who died of uh, a heroin overdose, and she her birthday was just last week. So it's kind of... Fitting in a way, I guess, that this movie is, is coming up. Um, and we're talking about heroin and drugs. And what, what do you think about, I mean, I, I'm assuming you've experimented with drugs in your past. Do you mind talking about this? I'm in front I'm of comfortable all of our listeners. It's just you and me, right? right? Yeah, right. It's just you and me. And I mean, I want to suggest that what's interesting between us, to reveal both of us, that to a large extent, we're both quite squeaky clean when it comes to drugs. And, and, Alcohol, too, for that matter. Yeah. I know your own personal yeah, I, philosophy I've, of that. I've never drank alcohol. Right, I've right. never smoked a cigarette right. or done any drugs. So um, I've, I've smoked pot. I still do every now and then. If I'm with people uncomfortable with it, I know if I can sleep late the next day, not that often, maybe once a month. Every other night. Yeah, oh, just okay. every other night. Well, just a few minutes before coming over to see you tonight. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and that's it. That's it. And um, I think I mentioned to you that uh, I know you lost a girlfriend with heroin, and I lost my my best friend, right? Uh, Ian, right? To Ian, Ian to uh, crystal meth. He mm. overdosed, and Ian was very successful in the industry. Uh, head writer for for Taxi and Bosom Buddies, and so on. And um, watching him go through this change and his whole um, behavior change. What, what year was that that he overdosed? I'm going to suggest it was uh, it was about ten or twelve years ago. Huh? Yeah, and uh, he. Um, his whole personality shifted. How did that affect you? It was it. I, I was still there for him. We would still do things together. Even his driving was quite erratic when we would go out to go a movie or something. And um, Ian would tell lots of um, long-winded stories in great detail with no payoff. 
huh. uh, waiting in line at CVS and da, da 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 and the fight he'd have with the manager, and he'd go into too much detail with dialogue. He said, I said, he said, I said, and with no real payoff. A lot of a lot of spinning, a lot of spinning. And he was actually he was arrested a few times at LAX. He had a crystal meth pipe in his. So ramblings with no just, point. That sounds like me. Well, no, there is a point. We just have to dig for it, Robert. Ah. <laughs> and he OD'd, so I lost my um, my best friend. So now it's you. Now you're my best friend. Fuck. Yeah, I'm sorry. You're stuck with that. I lost my girlfriend, yeah. so hey, you listen. better bend over, yeah. baby. <laughs> um, no, I, that's uh, that's got to be... Were you guys close by the end, we were, or had you split? We were not as close as we were. This was like as Francis' fifth grade elementary school, so we went to hmm. junior high, high school, college together. And there definitely was a shift in our dynamic, and um, and and he became very active in in the gay scene. And I am straight, and that too affected our dynamics, because I think it's a safe generalization that gays like to be with gays. I think that's largely true. Even though when he'd have parties, I was always invited and I was always there and it was fine, but it still affected our dynamics. Um, we were very close. I do consider my best friend. And then, um, and he, he died from an overdose. So and I know what you went through. Just, it was like, what, two years ago? Uh, no, it was about four no, years, four or five years ago. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, I, I'm interested in... Ian, how did you hear about it? His, um, his, his brother called me to tell me what had happened. What did he say? He said uh, his brother was never a warm, a fuzzy, and he said, um, I need to tell you something. Uh, Ian is dead. He died from an overdose. You know, so it, it affected me greatly. And uh, again, childhood friend, and he had it all so successful. Mm-hmm. He was very wealthy and, and, and creative and such a talented writer, producer. I gave a great eulogy. You did? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was good. They were laughing. I told stories. I did the same thing when, you, when my ex-girlfriend died. You told stories, and you, they were yeah. laughing, right? And did, yeah. it, it was really interesting because there were a bunch of people that came up to speak, and I think each one captured kind of a different element of her personality and um and the part of her personality i remember was her wicked sense of humor and i gave um a really solid speech that was after i had done a lot of speech competitions and stuff and i i put a lot into that speech i was really proud of it and uh it wasn't very long i wanted to get in and get out it was probably only about four or five minutes long and um maybe three or four minutes it wasn't super long but it was Long enough to make my point. It was really well crafted, I felt, and made a lot of people laugh. And there was just so much tension because, you know, she was in her 20s when she died. And so it was, um, it, it was like a, a young person's death and half of Hollywood showed up so, to her funeral. So it was definitely um, a, a very tension-filled Room and, and I think just saying something that, that broke the tension really. Her grandmother came up to me afterwards and mm. said that, that, hey, you really captured her personality because that's who she was. She had a wicked sense of humor. And that's what I remember most about her. And in my case, Ian's mother, who was still alive, came up to me mm-hmm. and said the same thing about you really, you really captured him. That's His, interesting. Uh, spirit. Yeah. yeah. Now, can I ask you something else? I hope you don't mind me talking about this, but you've, you've lost a lot of your family. And I mean, was... 
was there one death that was harder for you to deal with in the the people that I'm in a unique situation. I think I've shared this with you. You you obviously know this about me because you know me quite well that um, I don't have any brothers or sisters or parents or nieces or nephews or ex-wives or children. That's what's an odd feeling. And Robert, so let's talk about your will for a second. <laughs> yeah, you're in it. Even even when our film, 30 Love, which we're going to talk about soon in another podcast, even when it was accepted the Boston Film Festival, Robert, my first thought, I looked at the phone and said, who should I call? And there was no blood relatives to call. It just hit me. Because your, your brother died, of what? Of three years, I was gonna say two and a half, two and a half to three years ago, of of leukemia, and then his wife died, and they had no children. Everyone's dead. Everyone's just dead. But with Ian's death, it was such a waste. Yeah, it was such a fucking waste. And um, you know, I mean, our, our parents they get old and they die. That's the cycle that we all buy into mm-hmm. on the on this ride. But um, such a waste that we've both have seen this happen with yeah. with drugs. And I, you know, it, it's coming back. Uh, heroin, especially, is such it a is, huge epidemic it? in the United States now. And I, th- I think a lot of it is stemming from people who are, uh, you know, they're getting pills and they're getting hooked to that. And when they can't, when their supply runs dry, they just wind up turning to straight heroin. And um, it's a real shame. Yeah, it's a waste. Yeah, how's that for comedy? <laughs> waka waka. Man. Can, can I go home now? Let's talk about our top five. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I like this part. And we're going to rank down five, four, three, two, one. Robert, would you, I think you told me that you have a sixth one, though. You're going to do a little bit of, little bit of cheating. I you? have one extra let's that hear I was it. like. Yeah. Let, let's hear your six and five. Oh, my gosh. All right. Six and five. Yeah. Do six and five. So one of the movies that I wanted to put on my list, because it's such a great movie, but I don't know if it's totally about drugs. That's kind of why I left it off. But I think it definitely deals with some drugs, so it's kind of in and out of there. Uh, my number six would have been Clockwork Orange. Because I feel like that definitely deals with drugs. Uh, you know, them, them trying to get the, going to the milk bar and things like that. And it, it was a druggy movie. But my actual number five out of my top five is a great stoner film, Half-Baked. Have you seen Half-Baked? I've heard of it. I've never seen it. Half-Baked is a great stoner film. Every stoner I know loves Half-Baked. And it's a pretty good movie, actually. It's with uh, uh, Dave Chappelle and uh, uh, Jim Brewer. And, and it's, it's really a, such a stupid, great comedy. There's some awesome lines uh, that uh, are almost like uh, Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. It's got some of these great like little uh, memorable lines that make it uh, such a cult. Harlan Williams in that movie. Yeah, Yeah. Harlan Williams is in it as well. Sorry, I forgot about Harlan Williams. But even though I'm not a stoner and I I don't partake, I can appreciate what a great stoner film it is. Um, It it, it has some really nice scenes, but it's not just about the, uh, about the, the marijuana drug use. It's also about this guy and his life and, you know, trying to fall in love and things like that. So it actually has a little bit of a, a, a heart to it as well. It, it's not the best crafted movie, but there's just something about it, like mm. the writing and the and the way the actors are very clearly having a lot of fun with it that makes it such a great movie. Half baked. That's yeah. your number five. Half baked. My uh, 
extra scoops of ice cream. Oh, I go. just like to name them. Just want to say, and I don't know if you remember, there was a film called I Love You, Alice B. Toklas. Does that mean anything to you? No. This was... This was wow, you that, stumped me. Yeah, how about that? It's rare when this happens. Um, Peter Sellers, and um, he was smoking a doobie. It's the first time I ever saw a character smoke a doobie. A doobie, you, oh Alice my gosh. Alice B. Toklas, and so does Gertrude Stein. That was the theme music of Alice B. Toklas. And it was all about the brownies, Alice B. Toklas, and she made brownies and stuff. Not including that one, nor Wait Until Dark, which I really thought about. Now, now wait a minute. Mm. Even though there was heroin in the doll, I think I'd get the same look I'm getting from you right now, yeah. that it's not really a druggy movie. Is mm. it Scarface? Mm. Considered would have been a Absolutely. good one. Fear and Loathing. Yeah. In Las Vegas and Dazed and Confused. Having said all those, they are not in my top five. <laughs> However, my those, are, five. those are films I've seen. <laughs> number five, A Scanner Darkly. Are you familiar with Scanner this film? Darkly, yeah. Yeah, yeah a 2006. And you know, I have to acknowledge a Philip K. Dick. Mm-hmm. All these great sci-fi movies that were based on his novels or short stories. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. Movies like Blade Runner, Total Recall, uh, Minority Report. Mm-hmm. This is all Philip K. Dick, and I'm just so blown away by him. Uh, Keanu Reeves and uh, Robert Downey Jr. And uh, taking place in the future. It's a science fiction film. And just the way it was shot, it was shot digitally. And then with rotoscope, they converted yep. it to give it an animated look. Because I tried to come up with a cartoon that would fit into this category sure. of drug. This is the closest I can come with that. And um, Richard Linkletter movie. Yes. Yes, that's right. He directed it. And our undercover cop becomes an addict himself. Yeah. And that's where it gets really dark. I thought it was a clever, smart film. A scanner darkly. Yeah, that's good. Uh, number four on my list, Maria Full of Grace. Have you seen Maria Full I've of Grace? I've never seen that film. It's a really good movie about a girl who's trying to get to the United States. Uh, she strikes up a deal with some Mexican drug lords who basically train her to uh, swallow... Uh, balloon size, right. little, little ballooning balloons full of heroin, and then fly. They, they'll buy her a ticket, and then once they, once she gets into the U.S., she's on her own. But she has to go to the U.S. and then shit out all this, uh, all these little baggies full of heroin. They train called mule. Is that the term? Yeah, she's yeah. a mule. She's a drug mule. And one of the problems uh, is that uh, during the flight, she shits out one of the bags and has to re-ingest it and that's always really dangerous because if if it does that if it goes through your system twice it's more likely to tear and if it tears then you die and there's a a lot of uh concern that it might have torn inside of her and so you see her in the plane in the bathroom yeah and she shits it out and she has to swallow it again is that correct clean it off and then try to re-swallow it because otherwise she's gonna get caught yeah yeah wow what a choice yeah it's really interesting it's a great movie. I think you'd wow. like it. Wow. My number four, Reefer Madness. Reefer you've Madness. Remember, you've heard of it. You've seen, yeah. you've seen it. Yeah. yeah. Not a documentary. It's not a documentary. It's of. a storyline, but it's got a documentary feel to it. 1936, you know, it was funded by a church group. It was funded by a that. church group as, as an educational tool to mm-hmm. show um, to, to show kids. And obviously the over-the-top and campiness of the film and the evil pot and the, the actor's eyes getting real large when they're ODing on marijuana and mm-hmm. so on. And the film, as you know, has it was serious in its intent in the 30s and 40s, but it's been, it was reissued in the early 70s, like 1971. It's quite campy and... Uh, 
uh, a good friend of mine who was very much in the movies. He had a gathering in 1971, and he had the actual film shown on a projector in his home. Oh, that's home. awesome. This is before digital, and watching Reefer Manus, and we were howling mm. at how over-the-top and silly it was. Did you get stoned that night? If not, we should have. Yeah. And on the screen at the very end, in big letters and white, it says... Tell your children. The whole thing is a lecture like that. Yeah. Tell your children about the evil reefer mantis. <laughs> Did you tell your children? I don't have any children. <laughs> yeah, that's... Never mind. No. Uh, my number three, Traffic. Oh. Steve Soderbergh's movie, yeah. which was all about drugs. Man, that movie's good. Long, but good. And uh, talk about stylized film. I really like films that take that kind of... Uh, stylistic choice, especially when it works well. Uh, but I feel like, you know, he really did that with the colorization of the film and um, and just how the, the different actors were... They, they started to intertwine. It's based off of the British TV series, Traffic, but he... I think the, the American film, Steve Soderbergh is one of... He is my favorite director. I think he's he could do anything. That same year, he did Aaron Brockovich and... Both are just so masterful in, in his ability, but totally different films. And the fact that he can just move so seamlessly from one genre to the next and, and pull it off so well is great. He's got such a good sense of humor, and yet Traffic just works so serious. And he's, he's a, a master of filmmaking. And I think Traffic is his opus. It's such a great movie about the, the drug trade within the United States and how politically it's tried to try to be stopped and and diminished and everything else. I really like traffic a lot. This is really interesting. And and again, I, I always bring this up when we do our top five. I wonder if there's gonna be any overlap. There may not be any overlap. I don't think you, there you're will you're sensing be. there won't be? No. Nope. My number three favorite mm-hmm. um drug movie and Again, I just want to back up quickly, and, and with Wait Until Dark, obviously that would be a, a, a cop-out because it wasn't about the drugs. That was just a device to get the doll. Mm-hmm. But however, I do think that even though I'm considering it's a drug movie, much more so than, um, than Wait Until Dark, and I think, well... Uh, can I guess? You are going to say it from my, the hint I j- Say it. Oh, I was going to say The Man with the Golden Arm. It's funny you're saying that. I had it on my list and I crossed it off. Hmm. Wow. The French Connection. French Connection. And I think that it is a drug movie. Yeah, even though it's just so. a device, but somehow I'm, I can justify that. 1971, William Friedkin, I forgot, he directed that movie, and Gene Hackman. And it was the, um, the first time an R rated movie won the Oscar for Best Film. Was it? How about that? I didn't about know that. That. There's a trivia. It was a solid movie. It was raw. It was gritty. They're all great in that movie, you know? Yeah, the car chase. The car, infamous car chase and so on. And uh, French Connection would be my third favorite drug film. That's good. That's good. My number... Oh, wait. Did you skip... Are you out of order? Yeah. I, I had... I, I kind of fucked up. I had two number twos. You're out of order. You had what? I had two number twos. Well, what are we going to do about that? Well, I guess I'm going to have to kill one of them. No, say them both. All right. We'll, we'll give you a pass on I, this. I obviously can't count. Wait, I had three number two. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, uh, my number two, tied for number two, <laughs> is Requiem for a Dream. 
Have you seen Requiem for a Dream? I, I, I'm so aware. No, I haven't seen it. I know of it. It's great. Yeah. And it really talks about how different drugs affect different people at different ages and different lifestyles. It's really a fascinating film. It's, it's constructed really, really well. And it's another really great film. But also tied for number two, a film that I think it, it is a true documentary uh, in, in the truest sense, Skid Row. Have you ever seen Skid Row? No, no. Um, this is a documentary that uh, Praz, who is a rapper from the band Fugees, I'm not sure if you are aware of the Fugees, but Praz actually did a kind of undercover journalism experience or uh, investigation into Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles. He dressed himself up as a homeless person and lived in Tent City for a period of time to try to get to understand the motivations behind different homeless people. And he got a really, really good look at this lifestyle. And there was a lot of rampant drug use. And what was really interesting is a lot of the motivations behind some of the homeless people. Some, some of them were talking about um, I think it was in this film. I, I, I watched a lot of them because I came, became fascinated with the subject matter after, he, after that movie. But some of them were talking about how they wanted to be on Skid Row. They didn't want to, uh, to have a home or have a job or have responsibility. And yet they knew that other people perceived them as being down on their luck. So they would play up that, uh, that perception so that they could get more money and they could have people hand them food and... Um, and, and, and say, oh yeah, just, I'm really looking for a job. I'm down on my lot, but they're not trying to, they want drugs. And that, they actually say that in the documentary about, yeah, I just want to get high. I don't want a job. I don't want a house. I don't want any of that shit. That's awful. And it's really a matter of, of perspective of people who have stuff, who feel guilty and they really see themselves in the homeless people. And they're saying, man, I don't ever want to be like that. I know what it would feel like if I was there, but that's because that's the, not the lifestyle that you want. And it was really a what very you're saying is so um, revealing yeah. about the condition. <clears throat> and I, I tell and, you, the movie was very revealing. And, yeah. and I think Praz was terrified to do it. You could see in his eyes because he was living down there with them. And like spending the night, he was getting in fights with the filmmakers because he was like, you guys are following me too close. These people are, are drug addicts and they're dealing drugs. And they think that there's some camera crew following. You think they're going to be okay with that they'll fucking kill me and he had a right to be very concerned that the filmmakers were following him really too closely and it was starting to put him in danger it's a really fascinating documentary if you haven't seen it skid row it's called skid row yeah where does it in which city los angeles it is la yeah right down the it's street. right here it's it's, it's literally blocks away from two you. blocks away from where we're recording this right right it's fascinating so there's that these are good choices we may not match we may not overlap robert my second Mm -hmm. Favorite drug movie. How can we not acknowledge Easy Rider? Easy Rider. 1969. I was wondering if you were going to, you knew I was going to do it. Yeah, huh? I didn't actually like Easy Rider very much. You know, but it was so important. Yeah, I can understand It was so that. groundbreaking. I think for that reason, it has to be, I think, included, at least on my list. With I Peter. think I lose all my film cred when I say that. I didn't like yeah, it. But. Yeah, What's that sound? It's everybody turning off the podcast. Yeah. Turn, <laughs> click, 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 well, click, click. Well, they're still listening to you. They'll just <laughs> mute me out. 1969, Peter Fonda, uh, Dennis Hopper, and, of course, Jack Nicholson. And it was the, um, that film reflected the, um, the, the landscape of the, 
counterculture. Right. Oh, that was eloquent, what I just said. That's true. The landscape of the counterculture with the whole communes, living in the communes and the um, the hippies and, of course, the drugs at the very beginning. They do score. It's a cocaine deal, and that propels them to go on their bikes, you know, journey in search of America and now, so Jack on. Nicholson was great in that movie. He really was. And... and uh, we all know the famous campfire scene where they were all really stoned. They're actually smoking and so on. And we're talking about what was it about Venus, Venetians, and so on mm-hmm. and so on going on like that. But whether or not you liked it on a personal level, of course, you can appreciate how important it was as a landmark yes. film. So um, Easy Rider being now, my second. Right. Incidentally, when I was getting my master's degree, I had a I took a film class that was a little bit more in depth, and there was a there's a a funny story about Dennis Hopper. Uh, hang on, I got I got to pull up with the name of his. Do you, do you remember what happened after that movie? Like what his second movie was after that? Is that the one about the airplane? He made this movie about a a model of a plane, and the natives felt it was real. Am I making any sense right now? Something do you like know what that. I'm talking I never about? saw the movie. What was that movie? Um, but I'm trying to pull up what it was called. Hang on one second. I gotta find it. I'll just do a little tap dance here yeah, while just... Robert's doing that. All oh, right. it was called The Last Movie. The Last that's, Movie. That's what it was called. And so after Dennis Hopper releases Easy Rider, they basically give him a shitload of money, and he, they say, look, you did it once, go do it again. And he goes, no problem. Takes ah. all this move, money and goes down to, like, I think it was South America or Mexico. I can't remember what right. it was. And he just blows it all on drugs. And he's just like, these motherfuckers gave me a shitload of money. And he really fucked things up for a lot of the independent filmmakers at the time because the studios were starting to say, guys, let's just hire a bunch of the, you know, fresh out of film school filmmakers and have them make a bunch of movies. And this guy's great. He, we, it cost hardly anything for this movie. And we'll just give them a bunch of money and keep cranking out little shitty movies. If they do well, that's great. If they don't, then no big loss. And Dennis Hopper really fucked it up for a lot of people. And it was right after that they said, these guys burned us. We're not doing that anymore. And then they started trying to turn out a lot of the uh, the blockbuster stuff, Jaws and Star Wars. And that's really where they started turning after that. So while Dennis Hopper gave birth to a lot of the independent film movement, right. he also right. started to take it away. Right, right. Interesting. Um, are we able to see that movie, the last movie? Uh, I've never seen it. It's 1971. I remember reading so many articles about it. Yeah, it's in yeah. Peru. That's where it was. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. All right. Uh, so that was my second. So your... My first. First favorite drug movie of all time all right. is... Now, I have to say, well, this, this movie, I saw this movie eight times in the movie theater. It profoundly affected me. And when it came out, man, I could not stop talking about it. I had to drag everybody to go see it. Um, it just, it's another one of these movies that caught me blind, blindsided me. And I just did not see it come, didn't know anything about it going into it. And I fell in love with the thing. 1994, Pulp Fiction. I loved Pulp Fiction. And the heroin scene, I mean, the whole, there's a whole chunk of stuff that's all about heroin. Uh, where, you know, she overdoses and they have to give her an adrenaline shot to the heart. Right. One of the best overdose scenes in cinema history. Man, I love that movie. Um, I, I almost sometimes feel like it, it, it was really existed in the 90s. It's such a, 
a, a great. I don't. I'm not, I'm not saying it doesn't hold up well. I think it still holds up fairly well. But in the '90s, it really captured so much. I think of, of the time period really well for me. I that that was '90s. It was Pulp Fiction and, and this whole stylistic. Oh, it was revolutionary. Yeah, yeah revolutionary. Yeah, P- more than Easy Rider. I think is the argument you're going to make. More uh, than possibly. Yeah. 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 I think it ushered in a whole new mm-hmm. era of filmmaking. Absolutely. Good choice. Thanks. Nice choice with your five, and we did not overlap once again. All right, what's your My number one? My number one favorite drug movie of all time. Mm-hmm. First of all, a question for you, Robert, and for our listeners. Is alcohol a drug? I think so. I know what you're going to say. Maybe you do, and maybe you don't. You have it down to two or three. You might. And I, was, I always thought it wasn't a drug. Oh, I Googled Las Vegas. Fuck you. I'm yeah. going home. Uh, I Googled it. Is alcohol... And it said, yes, it is. Absolutely. But, but the, I don't think it's considered that. It, you know what I mean? That the, the masses, I don't... Is it a drug? Indeed it is. I read a lot of journals before I put this down as my first... I got to so, tell you, I, was, I took a recreational drug class. Yes, and they considered... Absolutely. They considered caffeine a drug. They well, considered then, you know, alcohol a drug. And they oftentimes would point out... Alcoholics point out that that's probably the most devastating drug because of its rampant availability. That's right. That's right. right. So, with that premise in mind, defining our terms that way, leaving Las Vegas, Robert, you know I was going to say that, didn't you? As soon Mm -hmm. as I said 19, as soon as I said, uh, is alcohol a drug? 1995, Nicolas Cage, when he was really good, when he, he, before he got a little bit, but uh, also Elizabeth Shue, wondering what happened to her. And, you know, the movie was shot in 16 millimeter, yeah. super 16. It was right. shot in super 16. You got that nice grainy look to yes. it. Yes. Yeah. And uh, Nicolas Cage won Best Actor, got the Oscar. I, mm. I didn't know that. I did some research on this film. What a raw movie. What a personal, what 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 a study of, of a human being just spiraling down. Yeah. And there are images, shots in that movie that have stayed with me. It was It was an intelligent movie. Lots of pathos, and I was blown away by that film, Leaving Las Vegas, my number one favorite like, drug movie Nice choice. Time. I have a question. If we were going to say, if we say that alcohol is a, is a drug, would it be fair to say, too, that other things could be drugs that we don't conventionally think of as drugs? Um, I'm thinking, like, 500 Days of Summer, which is all about a girl. Could the girl be a drug, or... Eternal sunshine of a mo- of spotless mind. Yeah, would- addiction. Right, that a girl could be a drug. So five hundred. Yeah, he was addicted to her. Hmm. He was addicted to her, but then in the end, he met Autumn. I think that goes against the he spirit. met Autumn. He met Remember Autumn. that? Yeah. I think it goes against the spirit. Okay, yeah, sorry. Right. Yeah, like cheesy. What were you about to say? Then I think it goes against the spirit of our top. It does five. go against. It's, I think that's a great question. Actually, that's something I would have done. I know. With the way we've been doing these top fives, I'm the one who cheats by have too broad a definition. Yeah. And if anyone, I would have come up with that. <laughs> and I would have gotten this look from you, as I've gotten many times. And then you would have heard... <laughs> oh, nice. All right. Well, hey, this I guess good. we recorded a podcast this week, this huh? This is solid. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. I'm good. sorry about Ian. I'm sorry about your girlfriend. Yeah. I liked her. I met her a few times. Yeah. Smart, smart. She gave Savvy. you a blowjob, right? Robert. <laughs> Robert. <You> just <laughs> You and half of Hollywood. Yeah. You know, she did me as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Ian ate my ass out, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now that we're get back, 
Oh, good times. On that note, if you want to send us an email, please be sure to do that. Send it to Robert at moneyshotpodcast.net or and or Ira at moneyshotpodcast.net. Or you can send us an Instagram message or Twitter message. DM us at moneyshotpodcast. Any of those ways would be a good ways to reach out to us. And if you like the show, please tell a friend about us. Spread the word about the show. Anybody that you think like might think might like movies or just two assholes sitting around talking about stories, anything like that, be sure to spread the, the, the good news. Spread the word. Right? Yeah. Yeah, good times. All right. And until next time. Are you okay, Robert? I'm, I'm, I'm a little high. Until next time, keep Where's watching movies. Oh. <laughs> keep watching movies. And we'll help you sort them out. Oh.